Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Hugh Linehan. Now, media in Ireland and across the world are understandably almost exclusively focused on the coronavirus at the moment, but many significant things are still going on out in the rest of the world, not least the slow bicycle race to government formation in Dublin and the ongoing negotiations on the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. We wanted to get a Northern Irish perspective on some of those issues, so I'm joined by Irish Times columnist Newton Emerson. Newton, hello. Good morning. Uh, Newton, you have a couple of interesting columns this week, not just in the Irish Times. You have one in the Irish News about uh, what's going on in terms of attitudes to the Northern Irish Protocol, and we might discuss that in a couple of minutes. But first of all, your piece in the Irish Times on Thursday kind of piqued my interest. You took as a starting point uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, who was very critical of Sinn Féin, not for the first time last week, uh, for refusing to name the country in which I'm sitting right now by its correct uh, legal name. He's not the first person to have, to have had a go at Sinn Féin over this subject. But you have some home truths for us down here about this. Yes, Sinn Féin has refused to use the term Northern Ireland for, well, for its entire history, actually, but for 20 years of governing it on and off. Uh, at the start of the Good Friday Agreement, people wondered if that was sustainable, but it clearly is. Sinn Féin has stuck to its guns. It has uh, actually gone further than that. It has uh, demanded the, that internet addresses have .uk removed from them and email addresses. It has civil servants change the way that they describe Northern Ireland in official documents. So uh, it, uh, it, this, is a, this is an extremely important point to it. I, I suppose you could say that the more Sinn Féin uh, governs Northern Ireland, the more important it is rhetorically for it not to say the, the dreaded words. Although I've always been interested in uh, an explanation that its former culture minister, Carol McKeelan, gave in the Assembly four years ago. Uh, she was chided by unionists for refusing to say Northern Ireland. And she said, Northern Ireland is an expression I will say, but not a term I will use. And I think that that those kind of uh, those kind of devices, rhetorical devices, are what you can expect more than likely in the Republic over the next few years. Perhaps Republic of Ireland is uh, an expression Sinn Féin will say, but not a term it will use. I think that's the future. I mean, this is perhaps a slightly less serious, although words and semantics are important, but it's, slightly, it's a somewhat less serious um, version of an ongoing argument which has gone on in, in, uh, in Ireland, in Dublin, about a different approach to Sinn Féin's attitude to its activities and its relationship with this state, with Ireland, the sovereign state of Ireland, and its relationship with Northern Ireland. So you saw that coming up, for example, in the attitude to the killers of Jerry McCabe, as opposed to people convicted of the murders of members of the RUC during the Troubles, that these were two different activities. But the reality is that uh, when it was uh, paramilitary active, um, the IRA and Sinn Féin were equally opposed to both the jurisdictions on this island and didn't recognise either of them. Yes, and there's no, there's been no statement to say that that that, that ideological position has changed. And I, I don't think that it's going to, obviously. This is the, this is a party whose reason to be is, is a united Ireland. 
Uh, and it's made it quite clear throughout its history that that involves something other than just bolting Northern Ireland onto the Republic. So this this goes right down into Sinn Féin's bones. Uh, you're not going to make it change how it speaks. And I think that you need to consider whether that is uh, a reasonable expectation or test to place on it in government. I think that there have been a number of statements from the Taoiseach over the past few days, over the past week, in fact, about Sinn Féin's finances, about its attitude to uh, the, the legitimacy of the Irish Republic and so on, that have been more about, um, have been more about point scoring than, than making a serious effort to, to uh, you know, to address the problems the Republic has with Sinn Féin. Uh, they're more about keeping it out of government than in get than on getting it fit for government, if, if you like. And from a Northern Ireland perspective, that seems irresponsible, short-sighted, selfish, and not really learning the lessons of the past 20 years. Is it, is it uh, hypocritical? Well, of course, people in the Republic think, well, you know, you're, you're a sovereign state and we're a devolved region, so the two things aren't comparable. And I do understand that, but I, I'd like you to look at it this way. Perhaps now that the idea of peace processing, peace processing Sinn Féin has moved up a gear into um, preparing it for a role in a sovereign government, perhaps that is an opportunity to complete the peace process rather than saying we don't need a peace process in the South because, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a superior political entity. Why not try and take a positive attitude to it, say, OK, what, what was done in Northern Ireland was, was, you know, excellence first stage of the peace process. But let's, you know, let's complete it. Let's say that, you know, yes, Higher standards do apply in a sovereign government to a sovereign government. That doesn't mean that what went before is wrong or inadequate, but let's develop it. And uh, remember that there were things like the Mitchell principles before the Good Friday Agreement talks took place. There are uh, there are uh, ministerial codes and so on in Stormont, all based on these ideas of uh, recognizing the legitimacy of, of the democratic mandate for Northern Ireland about exclusively peaceful means and so on. And I, I think. From Northern Ireland, you look at what's going on in Dublin and think, well, why don't you do that? Why don't you, if, if, if digesting Sinn Féin into your political system is such a problem, why don't you learn some lessons from us in Northern Ireland? I mean, it's not, we're, we're not that bad that you can't at least take some, some legitimate observations from what happened here and try and develop them. And one of them would be, well, if you don't think Sinn Féin is ready for government, what would make it ready? And how do you formalise that process? I mean, one of the things I liked about your column is it kind of turned the tables on us. And by us, I'm including me in, in this, in terms of the way we we take for granted certain assumptions about language and what the correct language is and the incorrect language is when it comes to describing the various political dispensations, you know, on this island, uh, which is one way that people call this a lot of the time, to avoid calling it by its, by its actual name. Um, and one of them was this question of... British people who sometimes mistakenly um, call the country in which I currently am, Ireland, they call it ERA, which is its name uh, in the first national language, Irish. And Irish people tend to take the hump about that. Uh, and I've yes. been known to do that myself as well. But equally then, Irish people take the hump if, if English people don't call the Taoiseach the Taoiseach. So where's the underlying logic in that? And I hadn't thought of that before you pointed it out. Yes, I'm not sure how many British people think of it either. Perhaps because I I work for newspapers and 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 have to deal with words every day. I am very aware of that because uh, you know it it is it is a strange inconsistency. And also, people who work in newspapers are much more interested in shortening headlines and avoiding repetition in paragraphs. Mm. So, at the Irish Times itself, I know, uh, of course, uses the North and Northern Ireland interchangeably. The Sunday Times adds in Ulster and the province. They're quite happy using that. Uh, and uh, of course, when you're 
when you're a writer, that's great because you don't have to uh, you don't you don't have to vary your sentences and uh, and try and stretch out paragraphs to avoid repetition. Uh, and so, funnily, funnily enough, in a, from a professional basis, you just stop caring about this, uh, which is which is a, a great place to be. Yeah, I, 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 I'll go with you up to a point on that. But I have to say, my hackles slightly rise when I hear, and I've heard it many times over the years, I hear Northern Ireland referred to as Ulster. Maybe it's partly because my own roots are in Donegal and it's not part of bloody Ireland and people should bloody well recognise that. <laughs> not part of Northern Ireland, I should say. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, although, of course, I mean... Uh you know, you've got many uh, examples around the world where geographical terms don't quite overlap with political terms. America, for example, Britain, <laughs> and so on. I mean, there's just just dozens of examples. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the, if no offence is meant, don't take any. Um, I remember when I was a child that people of my grandparents' generation uh, from uh, all backgrounds, nationalist and unionist, referred to the republic as the free state. Quite, uh, you know, just just quite uh, quite casually because that's what it had been known as for the first twenty or thirty years of their lives. Sure. They meant absolutely no harm by it at all, and yet now uh, it uh, it causes absolute horror. I I wonder how many people are accidentally dropping that insult all the time. People don't mean anything by it. We don't spend a lot of time. Most people thinking about about which is the uh, which is the correct term to use. Yeah, I I agree with that up to a point also. But on the other hand, um, if something does give offence, uh, I suppose one should you know one should take cognizance of that when using it. Plus, I do wonder if Northern Ireland is a province. What is it? What is it a province of? The pro- a province of the United Kingdom. But does, I the think United, I, does the United Kingdom have any other provinces? Well, the, we don't have legal legally. We don't have such a thing as a province in the United Kingdom. Um, I think that when uh, Ulster was. Uh, Northern Ireland commonly referred to as provinces when I was growing up, but I always took it uh, as someone from my generation as referring to a province of the UK. Uh, but the, the and, and the and the only province of the UK. Yeah, the only province of the UK. Although, of course, um, you know, for fifty years we were also the only devolved region of the UK. We've always been unusual. Um, I certainly never took province to mean the province of Ulster. Uh, however, I think that unionists have forgotten how obsessed they were for 50 or 60 years about having Northern Ireland renamed Ulster. They, they took it, as far as I remember, I think they took it all the way to the United Nations. Certainly the Irish government pushed back against it. And we came very close to having one of those kind of Greece versus North Macedonia situations where, uh, where in fact, it was the British government that stopped unionists calling Northern Ireland Ulster. So this brings in the idea of euphemism inflation, where even when you try having a compromise term, if not everybody is on board, which they never are, then eventually it drifts, you know, it does. It becomes not good enough. This, this conversation only goes to illustrate to my mind the kind of the incredible complexity, which will be, I suppose, opened up if a conversation about Irish unity or a new con- constitutional dispensation on the island of Ireland actually emerges, because these things always end up mattering, don't they? Symbols, culture, language, they all do matter. Well, actually, the one thing that I don't think is a contentious issue in that conversation is that a united Ireland would be called Ireland. So, in fact, I think that, the, that, that this is this is one thing you can you can put to, you can put your mind at rest on. Oh my God! So, um, so they, 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 at last, a, a strong argument for Irish unity. You sort this bloody problem out for once and for all. Yes, I think the chances of any unionist party demanding that a united Ireland be called West Britain are sadly low. <laughs> I'm not going to even get into the whole question of the British Isles and what they should be called. That's a conversation for another day. But listen, turning to your, your Irish news column, because you mentioned uh, unionists there, and you, it's, it's really interesting. You point to a couple of recent comments by, uh, by Arlene Foster and by Geoffrey Donaldson um, about the 
the DUP's attitude now to post-Northern Ireland protocol Northern Ireland and the opportunities that might be there? Yes, the DUP, um, almost universally now, I understand that, uh, um, that the entire party, apart from one or, one or two representatives, have signed up to this U-turn, has decided they're going to accept the sea border and promote a best-of-both-worlds Brexit. The idea that Northern Ireland will be um, between the UK and the EU and will have access to both, and that will be great. And, of course, the problem with that is that the best-of-both-worlds Brexit was Theresa May's backstop. Uh, Boris Johnson's front stop is potentially the worst of both worlds. It includes a customs border at the sea, which then has knock-on paperwork effects for our access, our manufacturers' access to the Republic and the EU. So uh, we do not, in fact, have free access to both markets. In fact, we've got curtailed access from what we have now. Now, we will have an oddly asymmetric situation where the sea border only operates east to west, not west to east. And it only applies to goods, not services. So where you've got asymmetries like that, you've got businesses that will be very clever at arbitraging them. And I can easily see finance and pharmaceuticals and software and so on thinking and businesses like that thinking we've got some we've got a unique situation here that we can probably capitalize on. But equally, a lot of businesses are going to think stuff this. It's far too complicated. We'll just move over the border or over the sea. Uh, we've got we're going to have problems getting groceries shipped in. For yeah, example, I saw, I saw um, some, some analysis this week saying that, you know, supermarkets bringing in a, you know, a lorry container load of, of, a, of a multiplicity of different goods. They could be have to pay thousands of, of, yeah. of, of pounds <laughs> per, per container. Yeah, £6,000 per container, about half its typical value. And you can't route that through the Republic either because there's another sea border between Wales and Dublin. So uh, now, personally, my view about this is uh, politics is the art of the possible. If it's impossible, it just won't happen. You can't have a unicorn at Larne any more than you can at Newry. That would be my view on this. And if the EU and the UK have agreed to this, they're just going to have to agree it means something else. I think that's what's likely to happen. Um, you know, we're not going to cut off our food supply for your paperwork, frankly. Even if it's our fault, we're still not going to do it. <laughs> I um, mean, speaking, speaking of your fault, I mean, I was very taken by the quote from Arlene Foster. She said, she said and I quote, it, it is time for intransigence to make way for pragmatic and practical <laughs> attitudes. Th- th- that, that's her intransigence she's talking about, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, she's never going to say that. Yes, you and I are getting sidetracked here into a reasonable conversation about the practicality Oh, God, God forbid. Yeah. Yes, what the DUP is doing is uh, is trying to uh, turn black into white. Uh, they want to make their mistakes of the past go away. Uh, they're going to claim this disastrous Brexit deal is a great success, even though they're the ones who rejected the best of both worlds deal in the first place and, and were instrumental in sinking it. The cheek of it is extraordinary. But of course, we've had U-turns on the scale in Northern Ireland before on the Good Friday Agreement, for example. The DUP or, and Sinn Féin didn't actually agree to that. Yet uh, now here they are working it. So, uh, so will they get away with this one? Um, I, I think that the, the, the sheer impracticality of the Northern Ireland Protocol means it's going to get changed a lot. So the DUP can probably, you know, will probably eventually end up being able to portray the free trade agreement as a kind of St. Andrew's agreement, you know, that fixes the Good Friday Agreement for them, even though, you know, that's a bit of a misrepresentation. I think that, you know, they realise they've got a a chance to to make this U-turn fit. I think what's most interesting about it from a political perspective is that um, at the time when the British government appears to be turning against the protocol and saying, we can't implement this, rather than the DUP getting behind them and going, yes, don't implement the protocol, now they're saying, yeah, Boris is a liar. Uh, You know, this is definitely happening. We'd better get on side with it. Isn't that interesting? Well, I think setting aside any questions of, you know, ethics or truth or consistency, um, it's an impressively audacious political pivot. 
and we'd like to tell you the punchline to it as well. I understand that the only senior figure in the DUP not on board with this at the moment is Sammy Wilson, um, who also happens to be its chief whip. So, so the only person who doesn't support the policy is the person responsible for making sure everyone else does. But uh, it tells you everything you need to know about the DUP and Northern Ireland politics that that's probably fine. Do you think, I mean, you make a comparison, um, slightly far-fetched, uh, I think, tongue-in-cheek, with Somalia as a country which uh, which offers opportunities for certain kinds of businesses. Uh, in the case of Somalia, those businesses uh, involve piracy. Um, and you're implying that there could be some, I, I think you're implying there could be some dodgy practices where people could benefit from from this strange legal loophole rigmarole that is going to be set up over the next 12 months. Perhaps an over-colourful device on my part there. Uh, the point I made with the Somalia example is that there's always going to be business opportunities where you have a unique situation. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be Somalia. Uh, what we are, as I explained later in the article, at risk of becoming is an enormous Gibraltar where you start to make a living out of geopolitical quirkiness and barely tolerated loopholes, uh, which at any point, either Brussels or London could close. Now, uh, I think that uh, people are a little bit aware that uh, Bruss- Brussels will want to contain uh, and control a leaky sea border. So if we get too clever with our access to the EU, they'll shut that down. I think what unionists in particular aren't aware of is that if we get too clever with our access to Britain, that could get shut down as well. London is entirely responsible for uh, implementing the sea border west to east. And it's going to have businesses and farmers there who will start complaining if we can leak in EU goods, if we can import uh, products from the rest of the world without tariffs, for example. For example, we could bring in Japanese cars here under the EU's free trade agreement with Japan, minus the 10% tariff, and then just put them on the boat, apparently. So that that's like tw- a £2,000 saving on buying a, a Japanese car. So obviously, car dealers in, the, uh, in Britain are going to want to stop that. So before you know it, we could have our own government uh, raising the sea border. So I think that, you know, we, we 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 need to be careful about that. Of course, you know, we're not unique in that situation. The Republic is heavily dependent on loopholes in British and EU tax law, Absolutely. which Washington, Washington and Brussels are very quick to close. But of course, you know, you spent 20 years diversifying your economy so that eventually you'll, you know, you know, you'll be fine when that happens. Uh, but we are a much smaller economy. If we start reorientating ourselves towards, you know, these Gibraltar-style dodges and then they get closed down, we're stuffed. Um, Finally, Newton, we've kind of all taken our eye off the ball a bit, I think, partly because, as I said at the outset, coronavirus and other stories, the election down here. Um, How's the executive, you know, which is only recently reconstituted, how's it getting along up there? What's the general perception of the overall political environment in Northern Ireland now? It's great. It is. It's weirdly wonderful. Everybody is sort of looking at it, thinking, "What on earth is going on?" In fact, uh, UTV political correspondent Tracy McGee did a great piece uh, a week ago, saying that everyone is waiting for the, the the bubble to burst. But her point was that there's a a, a big hole in the budget. Six hundred million pounds is about six percent. What is that? It's about six percent of Stormont's current spending, and that's just to keep the lights on. They also need more, you know, maybe ten, twelve percent more for the things they want to do in this new Stormont deal. And the budget is coming in March this month, um, and nobody really knows what's going to happen then. But the fact is, the atmosphere is great. Everybody's getting the optics exactly right. Michelle O'Neill and uh, Arlene Foster almost appear to be genuinely getting on. It's just. It's just extraordinary. Um, it would almost it would almost annoy you thinking, what in the name of God were the last three years about? But, you know, 
uh, you know, take take the positive where you find it. And so far, yep, everything's going great. Well, it's great to get good news from that. (laughs) Good news of that nature, if nothing else, Newton. We'll leave it there. Listen, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Newton for joining us. Thanks to Declan Conlon, our producer. Remember that you can find us on all the usual podcast platforms. You can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 